0: You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host and live Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring experts on the ground in Ukraine and from around the world, covering myriad issues caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I am Anne Levine, your host and producer from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. With me today is Taylor McKee at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. Taylor McKee is a researcher analyzing the socio-cultural intersections of sports and society. Taylor, welcome to Ukraine 242. Athletes are collateral damage in Russia's war with Ukraine, you are quoted as saying. Could you explain that?
1: Absolutely. This is certainly a, an issue that has been going back to 2014. You know, it, it's a small part of this story, certainly. And there, there's much larger things at play when it comes to the discussion of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But so often these stories play out in theatres of sport as well. And uh, this, this conflict has reached Ukrainian athletes. Several athletes have been killed in the conflict themselves. But in terms of the way in which this conflict has played out in a a socio-political sense, it's reached athletes that have to play against Russian athletes and and deal with questions of boycott. The the question of how Russian athletes should be allowed to compete, should they be allowed to compete at all, and uh, how Ukrainian athletes should treat competitions where Russian athletes are competing uh, allows them to sort of be put in the crosshairs once again of of this conflict.
0: I'm wondering just overall... If you have a sense of what kind of an Olympic team the Ukrainians may be able to send.
1: A very popular team. I will say that they will be a very, very, very popular team at the Olympics as they were in Beijing last year. And this is what's going to get very ugly for the IOC very quickly is every time that Ukrainians are going to be on court or on, on field, the the reception of the Ukrainian team once they're in the Olympics is going to be a direct castigation of the way the war has been prosecuted by russia and this isn't the beijing olympics these games are in paris this is going to be a lot different Uh, you're going to see some prickly press conferences i'm sure when it comes to the way in which public demonstrations against russia take place at the olympics this is a very 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 different olympics that are upcoming next year in terms of the country that is hosting them. I think that's something that we need to prepare ourselves for. This is not a country that is opposed to letting their feelings about social movements be known. They are not opposed to shutting down cities and and, and violently demonstrating at times. And that's one of the things that uh, is quite admirable, in my humble opinion, about French society in general is their willingness to stand up for what they believe is right. And I think you're going to see that very acutely with this upcoming Olympics, which is to say a very, very, very vocal support for the Ukrainian team and a very, very, very anti-Russia movement that I think you will see uh, very publicly demonstrated in Paris.
0: What is the current situation as far as where and when Russians can compete and the same thing with Ukrainian athletes? I know there have been a lot of things happening recently with all of that.
1: Well, it's a good question. It's a mess. There's not a lot of consistency across the board. Um, Ukraine recently signaled that uh, it's not going to bar its athletes from competing against Russians who are taking part in sporting events without the Russian flag anymore. Um, previous to that, if there was a, a Russian, an athlete of Russian heritage competing as either a, a stateless athlete, or I believe they call them a neutral athletes, as the IFC prefers, the Ukrainian government said that Ukrainian athletes can't compete in any of those competitions. So now they said, it's okay, you can compete against Russian athletes. There are many international sporting organizations that still have barred Russian athletes and even Belarusian athletes. The International Ice Hockey Federation, for instance, still has not welcomed Russia back into their international ice hockey tournaments yet. So there isn't a lot of understanding across the board in terms of where we're at with a a wholesale ban of Russia. But from the Ukrainian government side, it seems as though they are a little more open to allowing Ukrainian athletes to compete in in competitions where Russian athletes are competing under a neutral flag. And that's a change of pace in the the upcoming Olympics.
0: Where does everything stand right now with the Olympics?
1: Currently, with the upcoming Olympics in Paris... As with the, the, the previous Olympics in Tokyo, Russians will be allowed to compete not as Russia. There will be no flag. There will be no anthem played. They will be allowed to compete as neutral athletes. So right now it stands that Russian athletes are permitted to compete in the Olympics uh, as uh, as neutral parties, and they fly under the Olympic flag, and they are prohibited from singing the anthem or wearing their national colors. This is the tactic chosen now. And again, it's also important to remember that there's also a large-scale doping problem going on with uh, with regards to Russian athletes as well. So there's actually like a double-barreled scandal uh, affecting Russian athletes uh, and their participation in Olympic competitions right now. So there isn't a lot of appetite right now to welcome Russian back into the, the Olympic movement with open arms. And, and certainly we're looking at an indefinite time frame in terms of when the Russian flag is going to be seen again at Olympic events. Does that actually affect the quality of competition if Russian athletes are allowed to compete Probably not that much. I mean, certainly robbing an athlete of their national colors is, is a significant step, not one that comes lightly. But if you ask Ukrainian, I mean, I'm sure that there are mixed feelings about the idea of Russian athletes competing at all.
0: Broadening this a little bit, can you describe what athletics mean in Russia, what they mean to Russians
1: Oh, that's an excellent question. And it's one that uh, I think we should be asking ourselves more and more as we consider these questions of who's allowed in. It's extremely important to Russian society. It is extremely, extremely, extremely important. Dating back even way before the Soviet period, sport has been a, a demonstration of the strength of the Russian state. And that's not unique to Russia. It's important to remind ourselves of that. that in the United States, Canada, these are all nations that use sport in that same fashion. Though in Russia, it does take on a heightened meaning. It's important to evaluate Russian history and separate it slightly from Soviet history in this way, but this was a conscious decision under the USSR to decide to turn athletics into an instrument that demonstrated the strength of the Soviet system. So, for instance, if you're a fan of hockey, you might, if you look at the the, the history books going back pre-1950, uh, you won't see Russian entries. I mean, Russia essentially decides to to start their, their hockey program way, way, way later on than, uh, than most other Western nations, and In doing so, they used it to demonstrate the strength of their national government and their athletes, and that isn't the only sport. We know, in fact, that sport is important to the dictatorial leader of Russia right now, Vladimir Putin. I mean, he plays hockey himself in these sort of strange, um, semi-choreographed hockey games that he plays in, where he, he turns himself into Wayne Gretzky for his own amusement, it seems. And that clearly demonstrates the importance of sport to him personally. And I think that when we see these sort of public demonstrations, it, there isn't much subtlety when it comes to what he believes. He believes sports to be important so much that he actually participates. And we can imagine that the Russian state has an extension of his his desires. Not to make this all about hockey. My Canadian background, I think, is coming through here in some ways. Uh, when it comes to the, the Russia's demonstration of superiority, that applies to... Figure skating, it applies to soccer, it applies to every single sport that Russia participates in. Now denying them of their colors and of their flag, this is important. Though it's also important to remember that these sanctions and these these measures are viewed differently inside of Russia. This is seen as yet another piece of Western conspiracy designed to undermine the Russian state and that they have their own sort of way of rationalizing uh, what's going on here. So, so many who, who oppose Russian participation say, look, it doesn't matter what flag they're under. It actually serves their narratives even more. It almost martyrs the state itself and says, look, they've tried to take our colors, but our athletes still win golds, And they will, and they do uh, when they compete in the Olympic Games. When it comes to the question of doping with a 15-year-old, I believe, figure skater. Again, if you watch the way the news is interpreted by official Russian channels, everything is seen through the lens of this sort of conspiratorial, gaze towards the West was seen as another, again another attempt to undermine the Russian state. So it, these two questions that you've asked me in succession are actually incredibly related where most moderate Russians would probably accept the fact that th- these athletes have, if they've been caught by the regulatory authorities were in fact doping. I mean I wouldn't imagine that it's a majority opinion but certainly the official description of what is going on there is again just some sort of conspiracy of the West turning its gaze on Russian athletes because Of course, either it's a complete fabrication or all athletes are doping and only Russians are being punished. And those two storylines basically are the ones that you'll see pushed forward by official Russian politicians or ministers of sport. So certainly a tricky negotiation here. But in terms of what sport means to the Russian state, well, it's a demonstration of the strength and the virility of the the Russian people, the same way that it is in in many other countries. But I think dating back to a Soviet heritage, it is a, a much more nationalistic tool than you might find in some other countries.
0: What is the sports nationhood vortex like in Ukraine?
1: Ukrainian athletes are seen through the lens of the national independence movement previous to the most recent invasion in 2014, but certainly now as well. This is not simply about demonstrating excellence. This is about demonstrating perseverance in the face of tyranny. And that kind of context has its always been slightly below the surface when it comes to Ukrainian athletes dating back to the 1970s and 80s, but certainly much more now. So right now, sports for Ukrainians is a nice way to to remind the international theater of what is going on in Ukraine and, and these athletes can serve as sort of facsimiles for overcoming great adversity.
0: I would think that, Being able to see or hear about some of the Ukrainian athletes that are excelling and are able to continue in in individual sports, like in tennis, that there would be quite a morale
1: boost around that. Is that accurate? I think so. I mean, absolutely. To use sport as a form of propaganda in that way is common. It's similar, like we as Americans or Canadians like to imagine our, our sporting teams as representatives of our nation and therefore of our toughness and our endurance. You see the U.S. women's national team, uh, the most recent World Cup. We want to imagine them as a representative of that of, which is good about America. That being said, that, uh, there are things that we can find similar, but also things that we need to appreciate as demonstrably different. In Ukraine, it is extremely difficult to imagine how in Ukraine right now you could facilitate high performance sports at any level to support high-level sports, uh, high-performance sports, requires not just uh, the the will for these things to continue, but an enormous amount of resources. Resources right now that are extremely stretched to fighting for their own national independence. So, it is unrealistic to imagine that uh, this is business as usual for any Ukrainian athlete. Many have been forced to train abroad, in North America and Canada and the United States. And that obviously is going to affect performance long-term. I mean, you could see a, essentially a generation of athletes that are going to be affected by what's going on right now. So that's something to remember. I mean, I mean, again, this is a, assuming, of course, that the borders remain what the borders are and we don't have a protracted border dispute. So uh, seeing individual athletic success at any level, certainly at the Olympics or at high-level athletic competitions, seems to provide morale boost. It's also important to remember, though, not to to allow these narratives to blind us to the very real realities of how difficult things are in Ukraine right now, and that if you know a Ukrainian tennis player wins a, a couple matches, that's fantastic. That being said, it's not as though it's important to keep this struggle sort of front of mind.
0: You are listening to Ukraine 242. I am Ann Levine, reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Our guest, Taylor McKee is an historian and expert in sports at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. In light of recent developments with bans and boycotts of Russian athletes and teams, we are addressing issues with the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, both historically and currently concerning Russia and Ukraine. Taylor McKee, can you remind us about boycotting the Olympics in the 70s and 80s?
1: So the boycott era, as it's often referred to, it actually started earlier than the 80s. They started in 1976. The first real full-scale boycott of Olympic Games occurs by African nations at the 1976 Games in Montreal. African nations left after the opening ceremonies, a very powerful demonstration related to anti-apartheid demonstrations that were occurring at the time. It leads us into a boycott era that we often refer to with the 1980 Olympics in Moscow, the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, and uh, those sort of twin boycotts that occurred by the Soviet Union and Soviet bloc nations and by the United States in the Moscow Olympics. The lesson that often gets taken from these games is that boycotts don't work. You'll hear that over and over and over again, that uh, the lesson of the Cold War boycotts is that they were ineffective in terms of ending the Cold War, and that may be true. That being said, there is another time in which the question of boycott was extremely important in North America, certainly the United States and Canada. And that was in 1936, the Olympics, which were held in Berlin. And in 1936, there was a Winter Olympics also that was held also in Germany. In, looking back, it is quite chilling. Many, many, many people were were yelling very, very, very loudly for what was going on in Germany at the time. For instance, you have concentration camps like Dachau were under construction as early as 1932. Jewish people within the Nazi state knew. The American ambassador to, to Germany at that time knew. There's a wonderful book about this called More Than Just Games that describes the boycott movement in 1936. So certainly a lot was known about what was going on in Germany at the time. And the question of boycott, especially in the United States, was a hot button issue. So a boycott in 36 of Nazi Germany would have sent different signals from the international community, absolutely. To say that boycotts aren't effective, well, certainly we know that non-boycotts are also not effective as well. So we should treat boycotts on a case-by-case basis. And to say that boycotts aren't effective is really to say that you think that the Cold War boycotts were ineffective, but that's not true with all types of boycotts.
0: Ukrainians have refused to shake hands with Russian athletes. And it may go the other way as well. Russians refusing to acknowledge the Ukrainian opposition. What do you think about that?
1: Again, that's another wonderful question. And it is important to remember that issues like this occur at every single Olympic game. When the nations are paraded in and it gets to tea and you look where you think Taiwan would appear, you see a nation called Chinese Taipei that marches in with the Olympic flag on their flag, not the flag of Taiwan. There is not a recognition of Taiwan's statehood. There have been refusals to do all sorts of things that we would associate with sportsmanship. There have been refusals to compete. for Iranian athletes and Israeli athletes, there have been refusals to shake hands. Imagine if they're an American athlete was to go up there and shake the hand of a Russian athlete. I think that that would be extremely controversial. If you're Israeli, if you're Ukrainian, if you're Iranian, if you are a member of a nation that has such a very politically charged history with one other nation, comes down to how are their actions going to be viewed by those back home. You are expected to conduct yourself in a certain way. Right now, that applies to Ukrainian athletes. So their actions are very pointed when in those moments they're saying, you know, I'm still loyal to to how I'm going to be viewed back home where I came from. And that's the notion of how are my actions being viewed by those closest to me and those where I come from. So expect more of it. I think that it will spread. Like, for instance, if you were an athlete from Austria, maybe the pressure will become to not shake hands with Russian athletes in in general. And then you're putting Russian athletes in a, a pretty impossible situation. It makes you start to wonder if they should just be barred altogether.
0: It sounds like you're saying that in the world of sportsmanship, not shaking hands after a match, after a meet, isn't a great idea.
1: I don't necessarily think it's a positive development for world peace. That's for sure. But it's an uncomfortable reality with the way in which sport is conducted behind national emblems. In general, I applaud anyone who is trying to stand up to what they believe is tyranny. But again, that definition can be a sliding scale. I'm a little more skeptical about notions of quote unquote sportsmanship in general at the Olympics, because again, I think that these notions of sportsmanship and fair play and all these things are blown wildly out of proportion when it comes to um, how real they are in these athletes' lives. There is enough evidence to suggest that it has been a net negative for sportsmanship. The Olympics can have produced wonderful moments, but they've also produced murders and they've produced horrifying scandals. If you're going to compete for your nation, you are a representative of that nation. So I could see a situation in which there's an overwhelming amount of pressure for any athlete from any nation to shake hands or even engage with Russian athletes. And what I'll encourage us, again, is to consider the example of some athletes from the Middle East and in Southeast Asia where there's a refusal even to compete against them. And that's where the IOC has a huge problem. Because then the legitimacy of the Olympics is on the hot seat there. And that's something the IOC takes very, very, very seriously.
0: Well, what would that mean to the IOC? Let's say that Ukraine
1: said we refuse to even compete against the Russians,
0: whether or not they're under a Russian flag. What would that mean for the IOC?
1: That is a very, very, very legitimate possibility, maybe 55% likely that that will occur, maybe more than that. That has happened. And if American athletes, if Belgian athletes, if athletes from the Congo all refuse, then we are dealing with, well, are we going to punish these nations or if Ukrainian athletes more broadly refuse to compete in any competition where a Russian athlete is currently competing. So imagine a distance runner and he refuses to compete because there's a Russian athlete in heat seven. They essentially boycott themselves from the Olympic Games. I think that Russia or the IOC might actually look towards punishing Ukraine and would cause nations to be outraged. And this is the tightrope that the IOC has to walk. And now in the lead up to these Olympics, everything seems very severe and hostile. And then the games sort of start and these things just have a way sometimes kind of just working themselves out in the the absolute deluge of events that that occur during the Olympics. So many things are going on in so many contexts. Like, for instance, this question of not competing or or recognition of Taiwan is extremely important in table tennis and in badminton. Every single Olympics and not terribly commonly followed in North America. So things just sort of get steamrolled by the Olympic machine once things get started. But this cascading effect of, well, if the Austrians decide they're not going to compete or if the, the Czech athletes don't compete, you're going to see more and more and more and more and more pressure. And at that point, the Olympics basically has to decide it's allowing Russian athletes in or, or not. So that's, again, a sort of a doomsday scenario when it comes to boycotts. But one that doesn't seem terribly unrealistic
0: what is being said right now by the IOC about
1: Russia's participation? The the issue at play here, and it's important to note that the IOC hasn't actually said unequivocally that they're going to go the neutral athlete way for Paris. That decision is probably coming in the next four or five months. The IOC is very finger to the wind about this stuff. It's sort of like, OK, what, 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 what does the world think about this? And I think the world is still very firmly against the idea of seeing the Russian flag back at the Olympics. So barring a last minute change, neutral athlete.
0: They don't compete under the Russian flag. They compete as athletes without a nation, right?
1: That's exactly right. That's the IOC language right now. Neutral athlete. And that's true for Belarus as well.
0: That's really interesting that Belarus is getting put in that same box.
1: The Russians, they're also dealing with this doping scandal, which, to our current knowledge, the Belarusian athletes are not. That's an important distinction. If they say, nope, it applies to you, Belarus, as well, we know it's because of the Ukrainian conflict and nothing to do with doping. This absolutely no bones about it has specifically to do with the war in Ukraine. If this extends to Belarus as well, who I think we uh, can acknowledge have played an integral part in, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
0: What's the reaction in Belarus to that
1: as far as the Olympics go? It's hard to say unequivocally this is what the Belarusian people think or this is what the Belarusian, you know opinion is on x or y because again it's so heavily mediated uh, through state media i would guess that there are people that highly support uh, the, the russian uh, invasion of ukraine and i would guess that there are a great many people who do not but the question is should those athletes be punished for those actions and should those athletes have to pay the sacrifice their athletic careers for these actions that's the question that's on the table right now
0: what do you think about that?
1: I mean, this is where I think it gets into an uncomfortable territory. When you say things like, well, okay, if we were to boycott Russian athletes from competing in our competition, that that just punishes athletes. That's not fair. And if we don't allow Russian hockey players to play in the World Junior, that's punishing Russian hockey players. That's not fair. My answer to that is, it is not fair. Of course it's not fair. Like, fairness has nothing to do with it. When we punish athletes... It is, not, it is with a clear understanding that Russian swimmers are not to blame for the invasion of Ukraine. Absolutely. well, It is designed to punish, essentially, innocents in this way. It is designed to be painful. These actions are not taken with the goal of fairness. It's designed to be punitive. The goal of retribution, with the goal of punishment. And so often we see pearl clutching about, well, you know, these athletes have nothing to do with it. That is the point. So, what do I think about this? I mean, if we want to punish Russia, if that is our stated intention as a global sporting community, if we want to to try and apply pressure, then we shouldn't worry about issues of is this fair or not fair to Russian athletes? That has never been the point of exclusion or the point of boycott. It wasn't fair to U.S. athletes to deny them of an opportunity to compete in the 1980 Olympics in Moscow or Soviet athletes being denied from Los Angeles. So, I think there's a lot of tough talk when it comes to Russia. And then it comes down to these sorts of things. And it said, well, we don't have to blame the athletes. That is the design here. No one's being killed. No one's being maimed or, or, or hurt by these actions. But they are designed to generate the most possible effect on your desired uh, target here. And that's sort of, again, where I want us in, in North America to be realistic about what we're doing here. And if we're going to say no Russian athletes at the Olympics or take away their leg." I mean, it is supposed to sting. That's the idea. So in terms of my humble opinion, um, I'm okay with these measures. I mean, this is sport. This is not actually warfare. It's, it's, It's a proxy of these sorts of things, a much safer proxy. And it doesn't need to be totally fair all the time because that's not sport and that's not life right now.
0: What do you think is the
1: effectiveness
0: of boycotting
1: Russia? That is the billion-dollar question right now is, does any of this stuff work? Is it actually effective as a means of applying pressure to Russia? Um, It's an open question, right? And we're kind of in uncharted territories when it comes to the way in which this boycott is playing out. This is a much longer, extended, protracted boycott. What is the effect? It certainly has, I think, a a different effect than we would imagine in terms of those who will call themselves sort of the, the true believers inside of Russia. Um, I don't know that there's much that can be done from outside of that space that really can penetrate the hearts and minds of the quote unquote true believers of, of the sort of Putin regime, because everything that is done from outside of that space is, is interpreted through the lens of Western conspiracies to undermine their, the Russian state that applies to support as well. So is it changing hearts and minds among that core true believer set inside of Russia? Probably not. Right. But if, if you're imagining, you know, how effective a measure needs to be, we shouldn't be considering that core group. We you'd be imagining how it affects the moderate views inside of Russia's urban spaces, or even in places like Belarus, and in places like Latvia, and former Soviet bloc nations that are caught in the crosshairs of Russia's desires for conquest. So it's going to be difficult to measure these things. But when you look at the entire global sporting community that thinks in one way, which is to say, we can't, be seeing participating with russian and and again the last issue that generated these types of boycotts was the apartheid regime in south africa so if you think about the way in which we view that regime now the apartheid regime then uh the world has pretty much closed the book in terms of whether or not that who the good guys and the bad guys were there so again if you're able to sort of place yourself within that sort of context of history and say Look, everyone seems to agree. Maybe that moves people a, a, a small amount on those sort of moderate fringes. But again, is this going to end the war in Ukraine, barring them from the Paris Olympics? No. Is Putin going to try and use this as fuel to further radicalize his core supporters as evidence of, of a Western conspiracy? You bet. Absolutely. But that really shouldn't affect our desires one way or another. I mean, we're never going to convince every single Russian citizen to rise up and overthrow Vladimir Putin because... There's no handball team next year. So the important thing is, how do we want to demonstrate these actions to ourselves and to future generations and, and, and demonstrate what we stand for? The same way we look back at 1936 and say, you know what, we probably should have been different about this. I, I think that that's really what it comes down to. So if we're considering what the effect is inside of Russia, very difficult to measure, but I would imagine it has more effect on the moderates than that core group of supporters. But that also, we should be considering how this is to, these decisions will be viewed in the, in the lens of history twenty, thirty years from now.
0: Taylor McKee, thank you for your time and expertise. Smash it up! By international Noise Conspiracy. Our thanks to our guest, Taylor McKee of Brock University. You can visit his Twitter feed at Taylor McKee underscore T-A-Y-L-O-R-M-C-K-E-E underscore and discover more about Taylor and Brock University at BrockU.ca. That's B R O C K U dot C A. I am Ann Levine, the host and producer of Ukraine 242, reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Editing, Ursula Rudenberg. Recording, Michael Levine. To see pictures of our guests and to access our library of all our previous shows, go to Ukraine242.com. Thank you for joining us. Until next week on Ukraine 242.